Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. We're My Buddy Green. We're not My Buddy Soul. We're not Mind Body. We're not Mind Body Spirit. We are Mind Body Green. And when I purchased the domain name 14 years ago, I was very intentional about that. It, it was my belief. It still is my belief. And I believe all of you believe this now that true well-being is a blend of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being, all connected. Hence, my buddy green, one word, not three. With all that said, I am very excited to be talking about our 2022 wellness trend about doctors becoming leaders in the environmental movement. It is a very exciting trend, and I am beyond thrilled to have the one and only father of functional medicine, a man who needs no introduction, Dr. Jeff Bland, back on the show to discuss this very trend. Jeff, welcome. Well, Jason, thank you. And I think uh, that lead-in is just so timely and so powerful. It makes me want to take two deep breaths because there's so much below the surface of what you've just said that's very powerful. Well, you are so kind, and it's a passion point for, for me and everyone here at My Buddy Green and for so many of our listeners. And it's an important conversation. I'm glad we're having it. And, and I want to start with a quote you gave us for a wellness trends piece, which everyone should, should read. Quote, when health practitioners and caregivers start to think this way, I'm optimistic that we can make a rapid change and shift the trajectories of disease at many levels, air, water, soil, sea, and the cells in our bodies. Pretty powerful, Jeff. So can you unpack that? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think you are doing an incredible job unpacking that in every issue that you dis discuss, but let me give my, my slant on it. And I'll try to make this intro quick. I started actually in 1970 as, a, as an assistant professor of chemistry and environmental science at the University of Puget Sound at Tacoma, Washington. That's my lineage. And I was the first professor they'd ever hired for environmental science. And in the chemistry department, they felt that this was a resident place for chemists to be trained about the interconnection of what they did with the environment in which they lived. And if you recall, 1970 was the start of Earth Year. So a lot of universities were starting to develop environmental science programs to honor Earth Year. So they hired me as that first person to set up the department. In the 15 years that I was there as a professor, we did a pretty good job in kind of understanding the interconnection among our planet and our planetary cycles and how they influence ultimately the flow of matter that we call chemicals through all processes, ultimately ending up in humans and how humans function. That for me was actually the, the wellspring or, or the incubator from which ultimately was born the concept of functional medicine. It was that opportunity to be in that environment. The university president is a private college. Fortunately, he liked me. And he allowed me to teach all sorts of different courses and to develop this curriculum across different areas. So I had colleagues in the philosophy department and the history department and the religion department in the business school that would team teach with me in different courses in this whole area. Now, why is that an important context? Because I think it shows probably a little bit where my bias is, where my thinking lies on this topic. Because the color green is a very powerful metaphor to so many things. I mean, obviously the color green in a chemist world ties to chlorophyll. 
And chlorophyll is this molecule that in plants is a relative to its simile in humans called hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is red, chlorophyll is green. Okay, so now why is that? And what implication does that have? The reason that chlorophyll is green is because this particular molecule that absorbs the sun's energy in such a way as to transduce that energy into the ability to fix carbon out of the atmosphere into plant proteins, carbohydrate, and lipids to produce the fuel from which all other organisms can live. That then is recaptured through the use of oxygen in our environment, which is really a toxic chemical made friendly by the redness of hemoglobin in our red blood cells that allows the greenness in plants to be properly processed into the energy that makes humans whole. So there is this very powerful interrelationship between the hemoglobin we carry in our blood and the energy for which it's dependent that comes from the color green of chlorophyll from plants. And if we ever forget that, then we, we miss the link of how important it is for us to be attached to the fundamental processes of what goes on in our oceans and in our land, the process of photosynthesis. Now, from that then comes all sorts of collateral stories or adjacent stories. Like for instance, so what happens when something dies, be it a plant or an animal? That material from which it's composed, if it's in a system of feedback regulation between plants and animals and microbes, it then gets recycled. So the food of one becomes the waste of another. The waste of one becomes the food of another. That cycle has universal cyclic uh, stability. It has resilience. And in fact, I have analogized that, that, uh, that planetary kind of interrelationship to what we call the planet's immune system. The planet has its own immune system, which is tied to its resilience through the ability to manage naturally all those cycling processes of matter to energy to matter. It is almost a little bit like the Einsteinian equation of E equals mc squared, mass and energy interconverted through this e extraordinary process. Now, let me take that just one step farther, which I think is why what you called your company is so brilliant. Because what we have learned is that Ideas, experiences, feelings, thoughts, attitudes, which we might call soft, can be materialized into molecules through a transduction process that's related to the interface between our nervous and immune systems. This is a big concept that you say, okay, this conversation you and I are sharing right now, which is, in, in this case, I'm moving air and it's being picked up by your nervous system through your ears and translated into information, does that really have any effect on the molecules upon which you are built or I am built? And the answer is yes. There are new molecules that are being synthesized, new materialization of the ideas that we're sharing in this conversation that end up being resident in both of us. Now, what does that mean? Well, if this conversation was hostile and it was filled with dysfunction, and it was dysregulated relative to planet, planetary harmony, then the message that it would lay down at tracks in you and my nervous system or in our bodies in general, probably captured in our immune systems, would be that of molecules of uh, disturbance, which would, by the way, be the color of Mars, the color red, the, the god of war. And so if, however, this conversation 
was transduced by our body in such a way that it created a sense of peace, of joy, of fulfillment, of love, or whatever we want to call that, then it would set up a different set of molecules that would be produced and synthesized, materialized in our body, and it would create a different outcome in terms of our behavior and function. Now, lastly, and this is the big aha, it turns out that just within the last 20 years, it's been learned that these things, these what Candace Pert called molecules of emotion, are more than just transient. Because what they can do is they can influence epigenetic processes that lay down memories that actually tag our genes in such a way as they remember these experiences long after the conversation has stopped. So how does that relate then to what we're seeing with SARS-CoV-2 and the pathogenicity or the illness potential of COVID-19? What we've learned is that certain people carry comorbidities. Comorbidities can be obesity, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular problems, cardiopulmonary problems. These are the people that have these underlying problems that when they get infected with SARS have much more serious potential outcomes, even death itself. What is a comorbidity? A comorbidity we've learned is really a dysfunction of our system of balance. It's an imbalanced state of the way that we respond resiliently to our outside environment or even our inside microbiome. And as a consequence, our resilience being disturbed, our body is in a disturbed state and our body then is more at, at not at ease. It's more hyper-functioning to any additional trigger that it might be experiencing, like SARS-CoV-2. Now, why is that important? It's important because it helps us to understand why social determinants of disease, equity, inclusion, equality, are associated with social inequities that are associated with increased risk of SARS-CoV-2 becoming COVID-19. I hope you're following where I'm saying. These are sociological factors that are soft. People think they're soft, but they're not soft. They're signals that, transfer, that translate directly through these receptor systems that I'm mentioning that we're communicating continuously with our outside environment to take thoughts, attitude, beliefs, and lack of attribution and a sense of under-fulfillment and a sense of loneliness, and to convert them into molecules that epigenetically modify our gene expression patterns to be in a state of post-trauma or to be in a state of dysfunction, lack of balance, which then creates an outcome that we call increased risk to SARS-CoV-2 becoming COVID-19. So we're... We are the fortunate people to live in an era where a lot of these things are starting to be understood at a deep level of mechanism. And we can't throw away these old ideas that we used to think are just trivial, like psychosocial things. Oh, that, that person is having a bad day. No, it's way more than just a bad day. We can start to see these as important as exposure to a toxic chemical or exposure to a, a virus or a bacterium and producing infection. All these things come together to create the harmony or disharmony of our relationship to the planet. So the planet has an immune system, the microbes have an immune system, the plants have an immune system, we have immune systems, and they're all cross-talking and intercommunicating. That is why what you called your company is so brilliant. Always incredibly eloquent and brilliant, and I think we've all gained 10 IQ points by listening to you, Jeff. If you're coming back to, you know, why now, you know, I, I think by nature, most humans are self-serving. We all are, by self-included. And, and I think the gateway to our world for so many people 
comes with a health event. Maybe they're not feeling great. Maybe they went to a Western medicine doctor and they left with no answers and they sought out functional medicine. They sought out something and they finally got answers and, and saw success with their own personal health and well-being. And so with that said, what do you think it, it has really moved the needle in terms of the climate crisis now being in, in many circles referred to as a health crisis? Is it just we're, you know, on a self-serving level, we're more aware of the danger of toxins and that we're putting into our bodies and our homes, or is it COVID or is it fires and adverse crazy weather events? What, what's your take on why we finally connected the dots in a way that we haven't? Yeah, uh, thank you. I, I'm, I'll speculate along with you because clearly I, I don't have all the answers, but I'll engage in this as a speculation with you. I think everything you just cited in that list, plus a few other things, is part of the matrix that in, is impinging upon all of us. Obviously, the response to those factors can differ from person to person as to how they either weight them or respond to them, but they're all there all the time for all of us. And it forces us, each individual, to make a decision as to how much they're going to accept and how much they're going to bring in and trying to understand the state of them in this culture in the early 21st century. And I think that because of multimedia, because of social media, because of real time information, because everybody has a voice, a potential voice now, and a chance to express their opinions, whatever their opinions might be based upon, that this, this culture, this digital culture that we're living in and the nature of, of communication and the nature of transportation, which people now can get to different places and communicate ideas, both electronically and personally in ways that they couldn't before, I think is creating a opportunity to adjust our cultural understanding of where we as individuals fit into our lives and the lives of others and maybe even the lives of our planet. And so if you think of ecology as being derived from the word study of homes, eco's home, that we're all kind of now thinking about our home. <laughs> our home could be what we go home to at night or during the day, or our home could be a broader context. You know, maybe we think of it as planet Earth, this, this orb out in space. But somewhere we're all thinking about our home and preservation of what we, we prioritize as the integrity of our home. So it, it could be ourselves and our own health, or it could be that of our relationships over our immediate um, loved ones, or it could be the broader community or planetary. But I think there is a general sense now that, we're, that this connectedness is true. Now, how that gets translated into personal action I think depends a little bit on what Hans Selye talked about when he wrote the book, which I thought was a very powerful, you know, he was the father of the term stress, obviously a very important part of our lexicon now. In fact, I found it uh, interesting, an article recently said that the word stress is the most commonly used medical word of any word, stress. When it was, it was taken from physics, he, he appropriated it from physics, right? It, 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 before Hans Selye, the word stress never was in the physiological domain. He took it over from physics and made it then a term that we now apply to all sorts of things in health and physiology. Can we put it back? <laughs> yeah, I wish we could. <laughs> well, we have to build an infrastructure to put it back in bridges. <laughs> but 
he wrote a book that was a very powerful book that was not one of his best-selling books called Altruistic Egoism. And in that book, he proposed that we all have a strong ego. And he was dry, you know, kind of driving that from Freudian psychology. And he said, egos are very, very important, but they can be manifest in different ways. They can be manifest totally self-independent and self-centered, or they can be manifest through altruistic outreach. And he, he said the most successful people, in his view, that give their most back to society are those that have adopted altruistic egoism, in which they're driven by their own ego, but it's driven to the benefit of others. And I think that's a really powerful concept to consider today as to how each of us behave. I'm, I'm mindful of that. Of course, I'm 75 years old, so I'm kind of in the legacy phase of my life and thinking about how I give back. And I give back to my grandchildren and my family and friends, but also is there something that I can materialize from all that which I've been fortunate to learn over 75 years of living that becomes valuable to somebody else as they take the baton forward. So that becomes part of an altruistic motivation, but it's tied to my ego, <laughs> my own experiences. And it does my name doesn't have to be associated with it, but I have to see a value proposition that, that whatever I learn is worthy for me to try to communicate to someone else. That's why we're having this conversation, right? Because I feel something that I might share could be a value to somebody else. So I think that construct is a powerful construct in which ego becomes very important, but in the, con the context that it can be valuable when displayed for others' benefit, that's part of our responsibility. So your network of, of doctors is vast through the Institute of Functional Medicine. And so I'm curious, what are you seeing and hearing in terms of how climate change is showing up in people's practices in real life? You know, what, what are doctors seeing and what are doctors thinking about ways to get active and speak out about the implications? I think first, in my experience, it starts with food because food is a, and eating food is something that's commonly shared by everybody. I think there's three things that everybody do, every, things that every person does. Number one is they eat sometimes. Number two, they drink water sometime. And number three, they breathe sometime. That's a shared common human experience. Many other things are not so common. So they could be like, not everybody trains for running marathons or not everybody practices a musical instrument, but these are three things that everybody does. So with that, docs, particularly in our field, are very concerned about executable things that they can uh, deliver to their patients that will really make a difference in their life, in their health. Because in in sense, I still believe very strongly that people come into the healing arts with a high level of motivation to be of service to others. When they get into the field, then they find they have to make a living. And there are all sorts of things that come in there too, that maybe at times, I don't want to say compromise, but produce a challenge as to where they lie on that continuum between service and financial success. But I, I think that people come into the field of health, the healing arts, to really be of service to others and help them to be healthy. So if what I just said is true, then they say, well, what are the things that we in our field can execute on that are within our sphere of influence and our knowledge base? And nutrition is a big one in food. And so then you say, okay, within food, what can I do that's consistent with not only survival and flourishing health of my patient, 
but then build a system of community that would engage in health being infectious. <laughs> and I think that people go back to our food supply system. I think Mark Hyman has done a beautiful job. There are many people that have really spoken about it. We need to take this back right into the soil. We need to start from, again, the color green, <laughs> and we need to start building up our understanding of stability, where health derives itself, because it's part of this network of interconnection among soil organisms to plants, plants to, to humans, humans to animals, animals to the planet, and so forth. When I see what's going on within practitioners, we get back to things like regenerative agriculture. We think about um, st stewardship, conservation, wild spaces, rewilding, the concepts that, you know, maybe the most sterile environments aren't the most healthy. Maybe uh, getting people out into the wild and exposing children to, to the soil is important. There, there are all these kind of interesting uh, old but new refound concepts that are built around historical principles that lead to diversity and lead to stability, lead to resilience that tie themselves back to, okay, how can we make our food supply as healthy as possible, as sustainable as possible, as regenerative as possible, as diverse as possible, and in harmony with the planet so that we ultimately stabilize this tenderness that we share with our planetary ecosystem through the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, and phosphorus cycles. And so that leads to, I think, all sorts of things, eating within a hundred miles of, you know, ingredients within your home and, and things that we start seeing as trends in restaurants and in, in the natural foods environment and how docs connect into that is, um, you know, eat organic, eat diverse, eat unprocessed, stay away from additives and colorants and stay away from high glycemic things. Th these trends really lead back to negative carbon footprints and into stabilizing the ecosystem. So I, that's how I see it kind of tying together. So in terms of food and, and eating in a way that helps build a more sustainable future, if you will, talked about lots of things. I noticed you did not mention fake meat and possible burgers beyond burgers. And there, there are some out there who believe that is the solution that in, in terms of the climate change discussion that we need to eliminate animal products. I'll, I'll pause there. What is, what's your take? What role, if any, does fake meat play in this conversation around agriculture and building a, a better ecosystem, if you will, for the planet? Yeah. So this, you've really, uh, I, as I would have expected, you hit right on the tender spot there. And so if we do a Michael Pollan, we would say, you know, eat plants, a variety and less, but he didn't say what kind of plants, right? He didn't say what form those plants are in. Secondly, we could go to Francis Morlapay way back when, in which he talked about the balancing of grains and legumes to produce a comparable protein quality to that of meat protein, and that we could do that at least tenfold increased efficiency by eating the plants and not eating the animals. And that has an energy conservation component associated with it. And so we, we get into these questions about, okay, then in what form do we deliver these plants? If we believe in the basic principle that getting close to the earth and getting close to the color green, the chlorophyll in, in plants, in what form are they delivered? And I believe that we have to undergo some kind of a transition because I'm not sure that technology in its purest form is the answer to all questions. 
but technology does have a value proposition to offer sometimes in making transitions from one belief system to another. And I mean, we might say the same thing if we looked at the silicone chip and how that's influenced data processing. And it certainly led to significant value to a society, but it also has some negative implications as it relates to social media. So when I look at these, um, the technology of eating, and I go away from food deserts in which you can, and I, I did this the other night. I, in fact, I was in my, one of my, my blog spheres. I was saying, hey, I had an experience the other night that I recommend everybody do periodically. And that is I took an hour and a half starting at nine o'clock at night to go into a, our supermarket, not with the intent to buy anything. And I wasn't hungry. I just wanted to peruse the shelves at a time where there were very few people there. And I could just allow that to wash over me as a museum of our society and see what are the foods. Because often when we go into a store, we have a specific series of things we want to buy and we go and we get them and then we go to the checkout counter and we go home and we don't fully bathe ourselves to the experience of being in that place with thousands and thousands of different foods as to what it means culturally to us. And when I did that, I, I reinforced my understanding and actually uh, it, it helped re-educate me of there are some places where there are products in that supermarket that are technologically available now that are really good. And I wanted to remind myself of them and put them into my diet. And then there are aisles of just food deserts and things that I want to, from technology and food, wanted to totally avoid because they're anti-evolutionary. And so I think technology in and of itself is not necessarily the problem. It's how it gets applied. Now, going back to your question of fake meat, now that I wandered around the block, I, I think it's a stepping stone for, for many individuals to start to address why they would pay a premium amount of money for a meat-like product that is based on some vegetables. And it starts to change their thinking pattern. It's a materialization of a concept, right? Because they've now made a decision to buy something that is like a meat, but it's not a meat because they have a certain belief that it has a benefit to them in some capacity because they're paying more money for it. And I think that's a stepping stone to enlightenment. That's not the end point of enlightenment. <laughs> that is a stepping stone. Because once you get there, then you might say, well, hold on a second. If I believe the concept that my protein part only is a small fraction of my plate, my plate should be occupied more by other vegetable products. Now I need to fill those in with other things. Now maybe this becomes a transition in a cultural view of our food. That's my thinking. Uh, now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that's how I'm kind of viewing it. Yeah, I, I think the, the way I think about it, I, I think everyone would agree that the majority of our diet should be plant-based, whether that's, you know, 65%, 80%, like no one is going to argue otherwise. I mean, there, there are a couple of people who would argue otherwise, but for the most part, there is very strong scientific consensus, eat mostly plant-based. Then you've got the other call it 20 to 30 or so percent. So if you're really eating mostly plant-based, and I think the other consensus is eat mostly unprocessed foods, stay away from unprocessed foods. So if you're really doing the 70 to 80% plant-based, and then you've got to fill in this gap of the 20 to 30%. And I think if there's a choice between, you know, I'm going to put people aside who have cardio, high cardiovascular risk, you're probably better off eating a grass-fed burger, which is 
not processed at all, instead of a fake meat burger, which is highly, highly processed. But it all starts from having that base. And once you have the base down, it probably doesn't matter. And I, I think that the conversation isn't, you know, you know, putting on the spot, obviously, but like, it's not binary. It's not one or the other. It's not plant-based meat is the new technology and cattle's evil. We're done. I think everyone would also agree that factory farming is God awful, you know, and without getting in the ethical piece, it is, it is terrible, but also from a nutritional standpoint and a health standpoint. So I'll pause there. I think, I think it's a nuanced conversation. I think you said it beautifully. You're, you're a great uh, politician as well as a good thought leader. So I'll give a, may a couple, you know, a full disclosure. I, many years ago, was on the scientific board of the company Coleman Natural Meats in Sawatch, Colorado. That was the first company in, in the United States that was, went to the USDA to get a natural beef designation. And there's a whole story beyond uh, that is around Mel and Paul Col Mel and Polly Coleman, the founders of Coleman Natural Meats, uh, their fourth generation cattle ranchers and how they landed on their, their livestock becoming natural and raising without antibiotics or without, uh, any kind of veterinary drugs and without any feed additives and free ranging. It was a real education for me. And these were remarkable people, remarkable leaders. We fought big battles with the USDA because the Cattlemen Association, the last thing they wanted is to get somebody to be designated as natural beef because it would suggest all of their other beef was dangerous because it was not natural. So it was a big uphill political battle, which was finally won after many, many years in which the natural beef designation was offered by the USDA. But that for me was a real education about what is natural, what are, are animals always bad? And the answer is no, they're not. They can be raised with stewardship. It is good for the environment. It actually helps with vegetation. It doesn't hurt with vegetation. They don't, they don't end up in feedlots with a bunch of belching cows and a bunch of manure and bad stuff that tox is toxic to the environment. So I believe that there is, there are stewardship ways to manage animal husbandry and put them into our diets in ways that are beneficial for everything. And that's part of the regenerative agriculture movement. In fact, you know, we have these, and I've invested, I never thought in my life I'd be invested in farms, but we have this, this cooperative that's growing Himalayan tartary buckwheat in upstate New York. We're first producing the first organically certified Himalayan tartary buckwheat that's ever been grown in the United States, I think maybe in the world. And these farmers are regenerative farmers. They have animals on their property, but they are no-till and the animals are part of the uh, rotation of the carbon cycle. And those animals produce meat and milk that are, I think, very good for human nutrition and very good for the planet. But it is a, it is a system that they're involved with, right? That has kind of planetary stability in mind that's different than the factory farms that you were describing, you know, that are producing meat in a whole different uh, capacity. So I'm not against at all animal products, but it is the process and the, uh, the system in which we produce the foods that I think are very, very important to, again, coming back to this connection into climate stability, cl planet stewardship. You sold me on the buckwheat. How can I get the buckwheat, Jeff? Oh, yeah. Well, all you need to do is to go to, you know, let me know and we'll send you some, but uh, yes, I will after the show, but how can all the listeners get it? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, we've got a pretty robust website, bigboldhealth.com and big bold health. And 
I'm pretty excited. It took us uh, two years actually to raise our first commercial crop because you can't go to the seed store and buy this. We uh, There's a whole story about <laughs> this that I won't bore you with, but we are now producing several hundreds of thousands of pounds for the first time in the history of uh, of the United States, uh, an organically uh, raised Himalayan tartary buckwheat, which is between 50 and 100 times, not percent, times the level of immune-related phytochemicals of any other plant food. 50 to 100 times. So it's, it, we just happened wow. on this before SARS-CoV-2, and it was a kind of interesting timing. Wow. Well, I am excited to try it. I, I will definitely be emailing you about that after the show. So, Yeah, we just had a recipe contest. It was really fascinating. We got all these extraordinary chefs and foodies sending in these extraordinarily interesting recipes as to how they were using the, the Himalayan tartary buckwheat. Uh, it, it's really been fun for me uh, to have my hands in the soil with, with our farmers and what people are doing with it. I love it. I love it. And so in closing, you know, let's leave people with some hope, some solutions. How can we take action to care for the planet, to care for our health? What can we all do? Well, I think thanks to your directing this conversation, we've hit on many of the things. And, and that is, we know that transportation is very energy intensive. Whenever we're using concentrated in energy in the way of petrochemical fuels, we are using up a lot of energy and producing a lot of carbon dioxide in the process. So. I think, you know, you know, I started this conversation saying, how is it where we're not traveling on jets as much anymore? Well, that's one of the, uh, the things to kind of apportion out. How much do we need to get in the car and drive? How much do we get on, need to get on planes and fly? Because those are really big energy users and they produce a lot of carbon dioxide. Secondly, we get into uh, the question of uh, obviously how we're eating. And we've talked a lot already about uh, eating close to the earth and being mindful of eating as it relates to carbon impact transportation of food, produce it a long distance, shelf storage, packaging, all those kind of things become important as part of our contribution. Third, I, I, and I, I would never underestimate the importance of it, is our mindset and the way we talk to others about our stewardship and responsibility. Are we connected in to thinking and acting in a way that uh, conserves the integrity of the system from the soil up to ultimately the humans? And I think that intentionality plays itself out in many ways. Like my grandkids are so connected into recycling now. And they're so angry with me when I don't put stuff in the right trash barrel and we don't compost and we don't do things that they feel for them are part of the legacy they want to take into their lives when they become my age. So I, I think all of these things are part of actionable activities that we can participate in that when added up incrementally, small becomes big. It becomes a major force. Well said, Jeff. Always a pleasure. We are extraordinarily grateful for all of your contributions and your time. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Be well.